Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend marks the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, and our Old Testament reading will be Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 15 to 21, the epistle text from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, and the gospel text is Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. So that epistle and the gospel both immediately follow the text that we had last weekend, but the Old Testament reading, again, to be paired specifically to the gospel text, comes from elsewhere, this time coming from an entirely different prophet, a different book altogether. And we're going to begin there. We're going to begin with that Old Testament text from Jeremiah 15, verses 15 to 21. Now, Because we haven't been in Jeremiah in a while, a reminder to you, Jeremiah is God's prophet to the nation of Judah just before and then into the beginning years of their exile in Babylon. So Jerusalem, Judah, will be conquered by Babylon in 587 BC, and that's when they're taken off into that exile, that captivity period, uh, as a punishment, a judgment for their faithlessness. Jeremiah, uh, our study Bible suggests, probably starts serving in 628 B.C. and also has him going until probably about 580. As far as I can tell, church traditions over the years have put him a little closer, maybe to 570, and ending his life actually in Egypt, being martyred by other Jews who had grown tired of basically the prophetic word of God at that point in time. Now, I don't know that for certain. Um, That is, again, it's extra biblical. It's not from the the text of scripture that we have that 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 tradition developed. So it could be true, but it also may not be. I just don't know. Now, the previous verses prior to our text were specific verses of God's judgment, that he was going to bring the enemies upon them to destroy them, that they would be plundered, really. All the all the goods of, of the land of God's people would be taken away. And so verse 15 begins Jeremiah's response, Jeremiah's individual plea after the judgment has already been declared. Again, like last week, this is not broken up into different texts, so we're going into different paragraphs. We're going to go ahead and just read it, and then we'll double back to walk through it. O Yahweh, you know, remember me and visit me, and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says Yahweh, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you 
and deliver you, declares Yahweh. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. So again, this is Jeremiah's plea. Verses 15 through 18 and then 19 through 21 give us the response that God makes. I guess we could have subdivided the reading like that. But we'll take it as we did. So we start with verse 15 again to look through it. Jeremiah, in prayer, calls out to God by name. O Yahweh. He is... We use that word invocation at the beginning of church. We invoke, we call upon the name of the Lord. And so so Jeremiah has done here. And then he claims, you know. Well, we know God knows all things. But what is it that Jeremiah is referring to here? Is it to himself? Is he simply saying, you know me? Is he saying that God knows that Jeremiah has been faithful to the work that's been given to him to do? Is it the persecutions that he's endured? It's just interesting to leave that phrase blank without, well, what would the English word be for that? A, a direct object, maybe? You know, but usually that would be followed by something, you know, blank. And Jeremiah didn't give us that. So, just an interesting uh, thing to ponder. But the idea that God would remember him and visit him is in the positive sense. Jeremiah is seeking and asking for God to deliver him, to rescue him. And that's the words that we're going to end the chapter with, our text with, I should say, deliver and redeem. Uh, to remember Jeremiah, to pay attention to him, to visit him as uh, that Hebrew word can mean visit or inspect in English, and it can be a positive thing. It can also be a negative thing. God God visits his people in judgment as well. Here, uh, Jeremiah obviously using it in the positive sense, asking again to be delivered. And that's what the next phrase is, a more specific prayer. How can God deliver him? What does Jeremiah want? Take vengeance on the ones who are persecuting him. And that's been a number of people throughout the book already. Jeremiah was persecuted by the people of Anathoth. Uh, they rejected God's word and sought to put Jeremiah to death for it. There will be, uh, in chapter 20, Pashur, who will have Jeremiah beaten and locked in the stocks, those are a couple of examples. It's hard. Jeremiah isn't a chronological book, so it's hard to, without doing a really deep study, to figure out which of those events have happened already and which ones may be yet to come. But Jeremiah has experienced persecution for delivering God's word to his people. And so here he is calling out that God would bring about that deliverance, that God would be the one who brings about justice and, and repays evil for what they've done. Now, that actually connects pretty well to our epistle text, the idea that we would not avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So we'll get to that um, very important concept for us as Christians in the church today. We'll get to that with the gospel text, though, not the, the epistle text. Jeremiah, in the very next sentence, says that he wants to remain. 
take me not away. Jeremiah wishes to continue to serve the Lord and continue to help save this people, which actually is, again, under that church tradition, that would be what happens to Jeremiah in the end. That all those years later, he is finally killed because he was still trying to call these people to repent, and they had had enough. He bears reproach for Yahweh's sake. So he serves the Lord, that it would glorify the Father, which is what we'll see Jesus doing in the Gospel reading. Verse 16 has that wonderful connection to the the words that we have from Luther that we would read, mark, and inwardly digest the word of God. The word of God is so important. It is God's word that teaches us about our history and past. It is God's word that teaches us about his love for us. It is God's word that reveals to us the beauty of the Savior Jesus. It is God's word that helps us to truly love and serve our neighbor. God's word is... Well, to use the epistle reading from last week's language, transformative. It renews our minds. And so here, Jeremiah is saying he has eaten them. He ate them. It has become a part of him. So you think of food going in you to nourish you. We know the body breaks the food down and uses the nutrients from the food to feed the body. So it is with God's word. Yeah. You know, even though there has been at least one prophet who did eat a scroll, you are not called to literally chew on your Bible, but again, to read Mark and inwardly digest. So to take it to heart as you read it. And Jeremiah will use that phrase that God's word has become the delight of his heart, as well as a joy. Joy is a, a treasure. What do you treasure in life? Jeremiah treasures every word of the Lord. And the delight of his heart, it's what he lives for. And we know this all the more fully, more than Jeremiah ever did, because we know of Jesus. Jeremiah was looking forward to Jesus, but never got to actually know what Jesus did until meeting Jesus, his Savior, face to face. And we all look forward to that day. And we get to meet Jesus face to face. But we have the knowledge, again, thanks to God's word. And so Jesus is our joy. He is our treasure. He is our delight of the heart. He is our, really, our purpose for living. And so Jeremiah is called by God's name, Yahweh of armies. He is a servant. He is a member of that army. He serves the Lord. He does, delivers the messages that God has him to deliver. Verse 17, he does not indulge in the sins of the community, as we are often known to do. Unfortunately, today it's, it can be difficult to tell a Christian from a non-Christian. Because we just live the same way as everybody else. Well, that wasn't the case for Jeremiah. He was an outcast. He did not enjoy their, their way of living, and so he didn't participate in it. But not only that... But because God's hand was upon him, that is, God's message was working in him and through him, it drove people away. As he proclaimed the prophecies he was given to prophesy, people hated him, and they left, and they wanted nothing to do with him. 
if not worse. That's a challenge for us today as well. If we speak God's word to people today, his law and his gospel, calling them to repent of their sins, to give up, that's a gospel connection, to give up their earthly life in order to find life, many will cast us out of their society. Many will hate us for it and maybe worse, harm us. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to take that risk out of love for our neighbor? That's going to be the epistle text. See how it all comes together? God's word is a wonderful thing like that. All right. Jeremiah mentions indignation. So we have this last word of verse 17, and then verse 18 totally gives us a glimpse into Jeremiah's pain and his lamentations. Yes, there's a book called Lamentation in the Bible, and it was written by Jeremiah, and it is about the fall of God's people and the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, not a lot of good in that book. You get to watch Jeremiah mourn. And we get a glimpse of that here, his struggles. So indignation, his anger at the mistreatment he has suffered. He, he speaks of his pain being unceasing, his wound incurable. And then he calls his faith into doubt. He asks if God is deceitful, if God will fail him. Many have prayed the prayer of verse 18. Many a Christian have asked why they have not been healed, why they have endured this pain for so long, whether it's a physical pain of the body falling apart, or if it's a pain endured emotionally, or the, the trauma that we experience in, in everyday interaction with other sinners. But we know from scripture that all of the pain that we endure in this life is a consequence of sin. The only sinless one then still endured pain in this world because he took our sins upon himself for us. Jeremiah is asking if God will be faithful and deliver him or if he has misplaced his trust. It's fairly similar to the question John the Baptist sends to Jesus after being in prison. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Or should we expect another? That's the end of Jeremiah's speech. And then God responds. If you return, he just called Jeremiah to repent. That's what the word repent means, is to return, to turn from one thing to another. So God is calling Jeremiah to repent of his doubt and insecurity and to trust in the Lord. If you repent, if you return, I will restore you. God speaks of absolution, the forgiveness of sins. God will lift up Jeremiah, his servant, and continue to work through him. That's the next phrase, you shall stand before me. He will stand before the Lord in the face of the people. He will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. He will stand before the Lord forever in his house. 
So there's that picture of God working through him now and also the, the end times, the life everlasting. Uttering what is precious. What would that be? What would be the precious thing that Jeremiah can utter? In this context, we would simply say the word of God. But I think knowing the word of God as we do, we can take that a step further. We can actually go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And you may not know the verse reference, but you know the verse as it's quoted in the New Testament for us about John the Baptist, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. If you utter what is precious, Jeremiah has been sent to speak God's word to his people, and that is both a word of judgment, but also the word of hope and the word of a restoration, the word of a future that we have in the Lord. You shall be as my mouth. It's another way to say that Jeremiah will continue to serve as a prophet. What God speaks, what God's mouth would have spoken, is going to come out of the mouth of Jeremiah to the people. He works through Jeremiah. He works through his people. They That they shall turn to Jeremiah, but he will not turn to them, almost sounds like a literal picture of, of the physical event when Jeremiah speaks to them. Jeremiah is standing before the Lord, essentially. He's facing the Lord. But as he proclaims, as he gives this prophecy to the people, that they will look to him. They will actually, they'll turn. They'll see him because he's calling this out whether they actually hear or not, whether they actually believe or not, is, is left open in this. But Jeremiah will not turn to them. So that could be, again, they're looking at it. It could be more metaphorical to, to mean that Jeremiah will not go to their ways, which would be back to 17, as he, he hasn't been doing their ways. Hard to tell there what how to take 19, the very end of that verse. Verse 20. God is going to fortify Jeremiah. He's going to make him strong. He's going to make him basically unbreakable. The cities in that time were built sometimes out of just clay, dirt, and the same things that Many, many peoples would make their homes out of for a lot of human history. Some cities might have walls made of stone. But imagine a city whose wall was made out of metal. This is a reference to being indestructible. No city was built like this with this kind of defense system. God is going to make Jeremiah essentially untouchable. They will fight against him, but they will not prevail over him. No matter the persecution that he faces, God will be with him. God will protect him. That's the promise, for I am with you. Now, where have you heard that promise? That's the end of Matthew's gospel. From chapter 28, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. the wonderful promise that God would be with us, that the one who has created and restored all things 
He is with us. He is for us. He is delivering us. He is saving us. So much beauty in that, that little phrase there. And he does bring that out to save you and deliver you comes in the very next words. Now, we do have to ask the question here, how? What kind of salvation and deliverance are we looking at here? Is it earthly? It was for time. God did bring and deliver Jeremiah out of a number of the persecutions he would endure for speaking God's word. But again, as we said, tradition seems to hold that Jeremiah was killed eventually for it. He was eventually made a martyr, stoned to death. So, whether that, again, that may not be true. He may have just died eventually of his old age. But the point here is that, yes, there is some temporary earthly deliverance. But in the end, this is much bigger. This is not about earthly deliverance. This is about salvation. This is about deliverance from sin, death, and the devil that comes in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 21 picks up that same theme. God will deliver. God will redeem. And yes, he does that from wicked and ruthless people. Spared again, Jeremiah, from numerous enemies, but ultimately from death. And we know that God does this for us. May not always happen in this world. There are faithful Christians in other places in the world, other nations, who are persecuted every day. And simply to be known as a Christian can get them killed. And yet they are faithful. And they speak God's word. They gather as his people, as his church. They do what he has given them to do. Because they know, they trust that God will deliver them. And in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he has. Now, as a quick recap of our epistle reading from Romans chapter 12, today we have 9 through 21. Last weekend, we had it was chapter 11, verse 33, up through this point. So it was... 12 verses last week before this. And we were called to be living sacrifices, that is to essentially lay down our own lives and to live for the Lord, that we would be humble, that we would not look to ourselves, we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, that we would be the body of Christ. In other words, that we would be many members. Sometimes you have people today rebelling against that idea of being a member of the church. Look no further than right here. I mean, that's where the idea we can connect it to, at least it's where it's coming from. We are members of the body of Christ. We are members of the body of Christ here in this place as we look to serve the Lord. So we have all that conversation about offering up our lives in service to the Lord. And then we begin this section here, and it's going to pick up on that same same theme. Again, the text is not actually broken at verse 8-9. It's one text. I'm going to read this in two separate chunks. Verse 9 through 13 is a paragraph, and then we'll do 14 to 21 after that. Verse, this first paragraph is going to give us a lot of quick hits, really the whole section. Um, lots of little 
and fast statements that just come at you, a, a, a list essentially of, of how to live. So here we go. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So lots again that we could certainly be unpacking here. First, let love be genuine. Immediately in our text today, we have a spot where the text can be greatly abused. And I would imagine, although I haven't spent a lot of time listening to their preaching, I would imagine progressive Christian churches today, those who side with the culture rather than God's word, I would imagine that they abuse this verse pretty harshly. Let love be genuine. Everything in our culture, present day, 2020 America, is about love. Love is love. Just let people love each other. God is love. I mean, we even had the political slogan in the last election. I'm surprised I haven't seen much of it yet for this election. Uh, making fun of the current president's name. What did it say? Something about, I think it was love trumps hate or something like that. Our culture has no idea what love means. They really don't. Our culture's idea of love is just lust. I mean, you get somebody to name off the things that they love. And yeah, the significant other will be on the list, but then you'll have a bunch of stuff too. A, a whole list of worldly things. from different foods and desserts, sports. Those kinds of things will show up on the list. And it's just our longing for pleasure. That's what earthly love is. I love pizza because it tastes wonderful. I love hockey because I enjoy it. It's fun to watch. And so suddenly love becomes not about serving another. Love becomes about how am I served? And that's not love at all. It's, we should note in, in a section like this where we see that word love a few times, the Greeks had four different words for love. They had agape, which is the unconditional love of God for us, a love that never changes. And again, it's unconditional. No matter what you do to God, no matter how much you might despise or hate him, he will still love you. Storge is a family love, like the love that you have for your brothers or sisters, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles. Philos is a love of one's, well, it's, it's a friendship love. And then eros, we get our word erotic from that, is that romantic, that passion love. Interestingly enough, here in Romans chapter 12, 
these words love. And actually look at the one here in nine. So this one here in nine, let love be genuine is agape. It's that, uh, that love that should be unconditional. So we'll come back to that. In verse 10, that we would love one another with brotherly affection is really interesting. Um, it combines two of the words for love that I just mentioned. Philos, the friendship love, and uh, storge, the family love. It combines them together into a compound word. It's a, it's a love love. Philos uh, dorgoi. So te Philadelphia ace alle luce Philos dorgoi. We are called to, um, I like I like how this, the Greek program I have, Bible works is what it's called. It's encouraging us to consider translating that verb, loving dearly or devotedly. So <laughs> love, love dearly one another with brotherly love. I mean, it's... It's an impressive phrase. Philadelphia is the, the Greek word for brotherly love. Um, you, we know that as the, the city in the United States in Pennsylvania. Um, phila, philos, the, the word love of the friendship. Love. And then Adelphos is the Greek word for a brother. So brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And just a fun verse. I mean, the, all the, the love language being used in verse 10 but let's again let's look at verse 9 first just wanted to talk about that word love as we get to 9 it's back to that agape love and this is again right in the context of the idea of service so put that into verse 9 put that into the sentence of letting love be genuine when you think of that phrase think of your service to your neighbor why are you serving your neighbor is it because you love them is it because you have an unconditional love for them? You care about what happens to them? Or is it because you want something for yourself? My neighbor needs help, so I'm going to help them. Versus, hmm, my neighbor needs help. If I help them out, maybe they'll do a favor for me later. Biblical agape love is not you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's I'll scratch your back and then I'll massage your feet. I mean, that's just what it is. We serve and we serve and we serve. We give of ourselves. That's what we're called to do as, as the church, as God's people. Now, the next section here, the next phrasing, abhor evil, hold fast to good. To which one are we called? Are we called to evil or are we called to good? I mean, that's an easy choice. So the things that are evil, hate those things, despise those things, flee from those things. But those things that are good, cling to those. Don't let those go. Verse 10, that, that fun, hard to figure out how much love is in that verse. Verse. Um, so we have philos technically in there twice and storge is in there once. So a couple of friendships and, and, and a family love. So a lot of love there, that we would love one another. That's what we're called to do. Serve one another, love one another, and then outdo one another in showing honor. So not, 
we're not doing that for pride. We're not doing that for show. We're not having this competition of who can love one another more as a, again, a thing to boast about. <laughs> Look at me. I love you more. Sometimes in our relationships, we talk that way, especially the uh, puppy love of young couples, right? But instead, this is a service thing. Outdo one another in showing honor. We, that we would constantly be seeking to serve one another more and more deeply, more and more thoroughly. And this is Genesis 1. This is what we were created to do. I love talking about creation and Adam and Eve in this, this light. Adam, when God created him, was not looking down at himself. Adam was looking outward at creation. God gave him a, a task. As we talk about vocation last week in the verses that preceded this, God gave him work to do, and it was to care for creation. He was to care for the animals. He was to care for his bride. He was to care for the plants in the garden. And the same when Eve was created, she was not to care for herself. She was to care for her husband. She was to care for the plants and the creation along his, alongside of him. They were to work together to do that good thing. But after the fall, what's the first thing that we learn about them? I should probably look that up. Make sure that really is the first thing and not, not get that mistaken. So give me a second while I turn to Genesis chapter, chapter 3. Verse 7. So verse 6, they take the bite of whatever the fruit was. Verse 7 in chapter 3 of Genesis. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The first thing that happens to Adam and Eve after the fall is that they stop looking outward and they start looking inward. Their, their orientation towards creation has been lost. Now they are oriented only towards themselves. We talked about that as a definition for sin last week in the text as well. In curvatus and say that we are turned inward on ourselves. That's what happened in the fall. And so here we're called to turn that around again, to not focus on serving yourself, but on loving your neighbor, on serving your neighbor. I mean, if Adam had done that, if he had fulfilled his role, Eve would never have had to care for herself. All of her needs would have been met by Adam. And as, as it's the same way the other way around. All of Adam's needs would have been met by Eve. They would have cared for one another. Now, obviously, that becomes much harder in a world with almost 8 billion people in it than we are to care for one another. But that's why we don't, we don't necessarily look at the big picture. We don't look at the 8 billion. We look at our vocations. We look at our, our callings where God has placed us, what he has given us to do in our families and in our communities. So who do you work with? How can you love them? How can you serve them? Who lives in your home? How can you love them? How can you serve them? Who lives on your street? How can you love and serve them? We're not called to think of how I can pleasure myself. How can I be entertained tonight when I get home from work? 
That's not the calling of the Christian. Even though almost every single American household, Christians included, have their own personal entertainment shrine. I can't deny it. I have one too. I try to invite others in, although that's been hard recently um, with the culture. I, you know, the hospitality aspect can be good to be able to spend that time and rest with others. But the world, our neighbors need that too. We live in a world that's a rat race and they don't know how to rest anymore. So if you know how to rest, it's good to teach your neighbor. We're making great progress on this this verse. Yeah. We've got, what, 13 verses here? We've covered two of them so far. Sloth is bad. In our serving of the Lord, we are not to be slothful. But instead, we are to be fervent. So be passionate. Be intense about it. Do these things. Mission trips are helpful in this particular regard. A lot of foreign mission trips really aren't that helpful to the people that they go and serve. Those people become dependent on outsiders coming into their community rather than the community learning how to care for one another. Um, Not all, but that's a downside, certainly. One of the upsides of foreign mission trips is that people learn how to serve They see people who are in great need and they learn how to serve. And when they do, they realize how wonderful serving their neighbor is. And when they come home, they have that passion. They have that intensity, that ferventness to their spirit. And and it continues for a little while before burning out. And they go back to their normal way of American living. How do we catch this? How do we make this permanent? Would be a fun conversation, a needed conversation we should have. We are called, as verse 11 ends, to serve the Lord. It's why we're here. Jesus put it this way. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the purpose of why you're alive right now. Why didn't God just snatch you up when you came to faith? The old Left Behind series and envisioned people in the rapture, which is false theology. But the picture it gave was that when somebody disappeared, there was nothing left but their clothes folded up in a neat pile. Imagine if when a person came to faith, they were whooshed straight away. Gone. Clothing left there in a pile. God had taken them. Why doesn't he do that? Because there's work for you to do. He has given you the task of loving your neighbor, serving your neighbor. He's given you the task of sharing the gospel. There's nothing more loving that you can do for your neighbor than to share law and gospel with them. Nothing. Because if you do everything else for them, but they know not Christ, if you make their earthly life glamorous and wonderful and comfortable, but they know not Christ, You have not benefited your neighbor in the end. They are still lost. So, we love our neighbor, both body and soul. 
Verse 12 has a few more, um, and very similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. So here we're called to rejoice in hope. Rejoice. We're joyful. We abound as we think of our treasure that we have in Christ, and that is our hope, our paradise in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, that he has given for us, that he has prepared for us. We rejoice. We are patient in tribulation, which we will have. This earth hated Christ. It crucified him. This earth hates God. I mean, look around you. Don't open the internet, because if you open the internet, you'll see the hatred that is aimed towards God. Be patient, because the Lord will deliver you. Constant in prayer, we always rely on God, always, constantly. And 13, uh, contributing to the needs and showing hospitality. So we are, we are called by Scripture to tithe. But we go beyond that. We are called simply to be generous, as God is generous. God gave everything of himself for us, and we are called to give of ourselves. Again, living sacrifices. Um, we trust that the Lord will care for us as we care for the people around us. And then hospitality is one of those biblical virtues uh, that we would welcome people into our home, we would love on them, we would serve them in our home. Uh, there was a study by the Barna Group a couple years ago at this point, really interesting findings as it was studying how, how youth who turn into adults as they grow up there, what is it that helps them stick to their faith? What is it that made their faith worth clinging to as they grew up? And one of the things they found was that of youth who, young adults whose faith survived those difficult teenage and college years. One of the common trends was that they grew up in families that were hospitable. They regularly, at least monthly, if not more than that, would have people into their home where they could have conversation together, they could have fun together, they could, they could do Bible study together. Uh, even if it's just praying before a meal with a short devotion or, you know, the singing, singing of a hymn. A really interesting study. I forget. Households of Faith, I think, is what that one was called. All right. Let's, let's look at the other paragraph. I think we have to fly through the second paragraph because we spent so much time on those, those verses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is hard to bless those who persecute us. 
But we can look to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament text for this. How did Jeremiah bless those who persecuted him? He continued to share God's word with them. He continued to serve them. He continued to fulfill the vocation God had given to them anyway. That's what we are called to do as well. Bless and do not curse. And then verse 15 calls us to be with people where they are. If they're rejoicing, hey, we rejoice with them. If they're weeping, we weep with them. So your neighbor, when, they're, when they've lost a relative or a job or whatever might cause them to, to grieve in this world, you know, come alongside of them. Sometimes their grief is, is real. I shouldn't say that. Sometimes their grief is for a good reason. Other times their grief is losing something that their sinful nature loved. No. We grieve with them nonetheless because they're hurting. Verse 16 is going to come back around. Live in harmony with one another. Shows up again in 18. Live peaceably with all. So we are called to do that. We are called to as best we can, live together with the others in our community. Why? So that we can serve them. If we are not a people of peace, we lose our voice. We lose the ability to be heard. We are called to not be haughty, so we are called to cast off pride. And that includes busyness, as we think of the next part, associating with the lowly. One I struggle with, you know, is we, as you drive your car and you're going places, you see the panhandlers. You see the people sitting at the intersection. They've got their sign. Um, they've got their belongings. They're just sitting there. They're homeless. They're helpless. They're in need. Some of them legitimately so. Some of them, yes, are fakers. Um, they're, they're, it's a scam. But what thoughts run across your mind when you see them? Do you want to associate with them? Do you want to roll down your window and have a prayer with them? Or are you, are you so busy that you just need the light to turn green so that you can get about your business? I've got too much to do today. I don't have time to stop. I don't have time to get them a meal and bring it back for them. I, do we do that? That might just be our pride instead of humility. It's the same with the end of the verse, wise in our own sight. That's pride again. 17 is going to connect then to 19. But how hard is it to not repay evil for evil? How hard is it to not seek revenge? Just like it was hard to not bless, to not curse those who persecute us. But again, this is what we're called to do. Why? Why do we do what is honorable in the sight of all? Why do we not do what is evil? Verse 20 is going to answer that question. So let's keep going. 19, we don't avenge ourselves. Doing so prevents sharing the gospel. If you're focused on getting revenge against someone, you can't share the gospel with them. If they have hurt you, 
And so you seek to get them put in prison, or you seek to hurt them back, or you seek to sue them, or you seek whatever. Are you sharing the gospel? How disarming is forgiveness? To actually go to someone who has harmed you, or even in the very moment that they harm you, to look at them and say, I forgive you. And to actually mean it. When Jesus says he forgives us, it's gone. He doesn't look at us as though we're still this broken sinner. Pray that you are taught to forgive that way. That when somebody hurts you and they sin against you, that God would make you strong enough in faith that your forgiveness for them would help you to see that person as Christ sees them. Not as a broken sinner, but as his creation, whom he desires to love and to save. Leave vengeance to God. That's verse 19. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That is a citation from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. And really, it's true. I mean, vengeance is not our role. It's not what we've been given to do. But God does it. In the judgment, God does it. And that's what verse 20 is going to spell out. So verse 20 says, to the contrary. That one looks like a citation as well. I didn't look that one up. Let me look that one up real quick and see where that's from. But the point of it is is very simple to get across. It is a citation. It's from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. Um, if you really want vengeance against someone, love them. That's a weird thing to say, so for, <laughs> forgive me for this. Uh, love them. Because in loving them, if they repent, you have gained a brother. And if they refuse to repent, if they still reject God, they will be condemned. And there is no vengeance that you can take upon them that will be as bad as that. So love them. Feed them. Give them to drink. Care for them. That's what God has given you to do. Verse 21 is a summary statement of it all. Do not be overcome by evil. There is danger when we let sin have its way with us. When we let our anger dwell in our heart, there's danger there. There's danger for us. When we start seeking revenge, we start looking to repay evil for evil, that's dangerous to us. It strips away forgiveness, not just in the moment, but it threatens to strip away us from the forgiveness of God because we abandon him. We abandon his ways. So we got to be careful there. Don't overcome evil by evil. Or don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the end, we know who wins. So trust in him now. Know that he has delivered you. Know that no matter what this world does to you, no matter how bad it gets, God wins. And he has promised you that you get to live with him forever.
Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, has a line about that. I forget which verse that is. But he talks about even if they they take away his good, his fame, his child, his wife, they cannot take away the Lord from him. They cannot take away his salvation. Now that brings us to our gospel text from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is just after Peter's confession. So from that time, from the moment Peter made the confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus responded by saying, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. From that moment, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what we know as Holy Week, that he will go to Jerusalem, he will suffer, he will die for our sins, and he will be risen from the grave by the Father, that he goes to pay the price for us. This is why he's come. And we talked about this last week with the previous verse, verse 20, Jesus instructing the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Why the secrecy? Because this is why he has come. He has not come to spend his time preaching. That's not true. He has not come to spend his time doing all the miracles. He has come to preach, to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven has come near, and then to do this. John the Baptist prepared the way that people would hear Jesus. Jesus preaching is preparing the way for people to see the cross and to hear the blessed word of forgiveness and restoration and life that they have in him and through him and with him. In hindsight, we know all about the suffering Jesus endures at their hands. The false arrest the secret trial that happened in the middle of the night instead of publicly in the morning, the dragging off before King Herod and Pilate, both. Herod mocked him severely. Pilate's a little bit more empathetic towards him, but still hasn't beaten, beaten, I mean, lashed, tortured crown of thorns placed upon his head, being struck by the soldiers, forced to carry the cross up the hill to Golgotha, and then having his nail, his hands pierced through by the nails and the hammer. The same with his feet. Bleeding, 
gasping, being asphyxiated slowly. The death of Christ, we know. We know it from, from his word, being able to reflect on that. We do this together every year during the season of Lent, which concludes with the, the week of Holy Week and ultimately Easter then transitions us out of Lent. Jesus is rejected by the leaders of God's people, the very people who should have rejoiced to have seen him. The Messiah has finally come, but instead they are so haughty, prideful, stuck in their sins, incurvatus in se, curved in on themselves, that they, they can't see that he is, is the Christ, the anointed one of God. And so they kill him. But he doesn't stay dead. On the third day, on Easter morning, Jesus Christ rises from the grave. The tomb is burst open. And he lives. He lives that you may live. He lives that you may know life forevermore. And yet, Peter hears this, and Peter's response to Jesus is he, he takes him aside, so he, he does seek to do this privately, so there's, there is that. But then he rebukes him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? And yet we do, don't we? How many times have we been angry? And we share our frustration. We take out our frustration on God in prayer. How could you let this happen to me? Do you really love me? Are you really there? Almost like Jeremiah's prayer in the text today. We do this. We rebuke God. We shouldn't. He called Jeremiah to repent. And the Spirit works repentance in us also. And God forgives. The, the idea of a Messiah that they had was that he would come and he would save them from Rome. Jesus, you cannot be put to death. You have to crush Rome. You have to get rid of these Pharisees for us. That's the thought process. This doesn't mesh with what the disciples wanted their Messiah to do for them. But it is what their Messiah needed to do for them. God doesn't care for us the way we want to be cared for. God cares for us the way he knows that we need to be cared for. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. interesting phrase. We talked about that last week as Jesus speaks the words that the, the Roman Catholic Church say makes Peter the Pope. The next thing he says to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. So that's pretty intense. Uh, quite a turn of events from, from one text to the next, and they're right next to each other again. So 
This connects, though, back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutral ground in the fight. You're either on God's side or you stand against him. That's our rebellion. And so Jesus speaks it like it is right here. Peter's not on God's side. Peter doesn't have God's plan in mind. Peter has his own selfish interests in mind, his own comfort in life and mind. And so Jesus calls it what it is. This is not from God. This is from the devil. Now, interestingly enough, does Peter even get it during Holy Week? Jesus has to do this again. Maybe not quite as forcibly in the response that we see from Jesus, but Peter cuts off Malchus's ear in the garden, right? And Jesus has to tell him to put the sword away. Peter still didn't get it. By seeking to prevent the death of Jesus, you are seeking to prevent God's will. That's not a place we want to be. Not in opposition to the Lord's will. We don't want that. So we look to the next paragraph then. So before we do, verse 23, the end of that, the things of God are salvation in Christ. The things of man are our false hopes and our idols. Next paragraph. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the soul of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There is a lot of parallel back to chapter 10 in this paragraph. So chapter 10 is where Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. He warns them that he is sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves and that they will be persecuted. And there's a little bit of this, the same language about saving your life, about taking up your cross. Those, those phrases show up back in chapter 10 already. So here Jesus is reiterating that idea, maybe expounding upon it a little bit even himself. Um, so first, if you want to follow Jesus, what do you have to do? Deny yourself. Get rid of your idols. Get rid of your comfort. Get rid of your desires in this world. They had no idea just how literally he meant that phrase. Take up his cross and follow me that Jesus would be crucified. They didn't have that picture yet. They didn't know he would die on a cross. They didn't know that several of them would die on crosses. Take up your cross and follow me is the call of lifelong discipleship. But it's deeper than a bear this pain kind of thing. 
It's death. Death to self. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. A cross is a symbol of death. Which Jesus actually turns into a symbol for life. How incredible is that? It goes from being our death to instead being the death of death, the death of the devil, uh, the death of our sin on the cross. Incredible picture that comes in the crucifixion. True life isn't what we think it is. Getting up every morning, enjoying the comfortable bed, the comfortable home, your family, your friends, going off to work, enjoying food, coming home, watching TV, going to a game, whatever it may be, whatever it is that you enjoy, hunting, fishing, concerts, the things that we consider and look at as life aren't really life. Christ is life. Christ gives us life. Christ gives meaning to our lives. So we are called to give up the life that we know and instead to follow him. And verse 26 is going to spell that out. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I don't know. The richest man in the world, the Amazon founder, uh, Jeff Bezos, I think is the name. Last I heard, he just became a trillionaire. I don't know if he's Christian or not. And yes, that matters. That matters a lot. Because if he's Christian, he is our brother and he is he's not our brother and sister. He is our brother. We are his brothers and sisters. And we get to live with him in paradise. We get to see him. But if he's not, his trillion bucks doesn't do anything. When God comes on the last day, it all poofs. Gone. Nothing. He will have lost everything he worked for, and he will know nothing but death. Life is not what we think it is. You cannot buy salvation. You cannot earn it. You cannot achieve it for yourself. Our sinful nature loves to do that. We love trying to achieve our own salvation. We always think we have to do something, but we don't. God does it all for us. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what makes the gospel truly comforting. Because I can't do it. If it's up to me, I'll never know if I did enough. How do I know I've tipped the scales in my favor? How do I know I haven't, haven't done something wrong that I wasn't even aware of that tips them back? You just never know. But because of the gospel being about what God has done for us, you can know you have that certainty. He has forgiven you. He has promised you life. Now, verses 27 and 28. I guess 26, real quick, the, the last sentence there, the last question, um, connects to last week's epistle. What, what do we have that we can give to God? The answer is nothing. Everything's his anyway. Even the trillion bucks, they're already his. We can't give him anything. So, trust in him. Take what he gives you. 27 and 28 are not the same event. They're not the same focus. So 27 is a reference to the second coming of Christ. 
It is a prophecy. It is a promise that he is coming back. And it's not a, a rewards basis. It's not good works, bad works, getting good rewards and bad rewards. It's a thing of faith and unbelief. So the work of Christ is glory to his Father because it brings us to his Father. And then it refers back to verse 25, that our lives would be saved if we've given them up, if we've lost our life for the sake of Christ. So on account of faith, it doesn't matter how much good that you're doing. Like You don't have to outpace. Well, we've been called by the epistle to outdo one another. But we're not keeping score. It's not about our good works. It's about faith. That he will repay each one when he comes. But he is going to come. That's a promise. He's coming back and he's going to take you to be with himself. Now verse 28 is a different event. So 27 referred to all. 28 is going to refer to some. So there's a little distinction there. But the possibilities of 28's reference here, it could be referring to the last day, but that doesn't make any sense. If it refers to the last day, all the disciples have tasted death. This makes Christ out to be either a liar or just not all-knowing, and neither of those things works for him to be the Christ. So that's why we say it's not the same event as verse 27 is, that he shifts gear when he says truly at the start of 28 to a, a bigger well, a more local event in that sense. Some say it's the transfiguration, which is coming in chapter 17. Um, the problem with that is that all of the disciples don't see death until after the transfiguration. So most likely, this is actually a reference to Easter, to Good Friday and Easter. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom, that they will see Christ lifted up. They will then see him risen from the grave, and then they will see him again even, if you want to expand that to the ascension, they will see him ascend into the into the heavens to reign over his creation forevermore. That's the way I take it, because there's one of the disciples, so it makes the sum part true, there's one of the disciples who doesn't get to see all of that. Judas, upon the realization of what he's done, that they plan to kill Christ, he hangs himself. So, I take verse 28 here to be a reference to, I, I think I would include ascension now that I've talked about that, just the full picture of what Christ has come to do when you go all the way back up to verse 21. That Christ has come to suffer, to die, and to rise again. To be our king, ruling over his creation. That's the, the kingdom connection, the son of man coming in his kingdom. And he has. Amen.